When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington. And tonight, the United States of America versus a far-right militia accused of trying to overthrow the government. And perhaps its biggest test yet. Federal prosecutors today rested their historic case against five alleged leaders of the Oath Keepers, including its founder, for their role in the U.S. Capitol attack on January 6, 2021. Over the last month, the Justice Department presented witness testimony and shocking videos and damning text messages and more, all of it evidence, the prosecutors say, proves the five defendants attempted to carry out a coordinated conspiracy to stop the legal and lawful transfer of presidential power and keep Donald Trump in the White House. Now, why is this case so different than the hundreds of other cases facing alleged January 6th rioters and insurrectionists? Two words, seditious conspiracy. That's a rare charge. It's one that was put on the books around the time of the U.S. Civil War, when the Confederacy declared war on the U.S. government. It's a charge reserved for only the gravest of threats to the U.S. government. And these five alleged Oath Keepers are the first to stand trial for this accusation in more than a decade. To really understand this case, you got to first understand who and what the Oath Keepers are. The, The group was founded by this guy, Stuart Rhodes, in 2009. Rhodes is in anti-government extremist, an army veteran, and a disbarred lawyer. He accidentally shot out his own eye several years ago. And according to its former website, the Oath Keepers is a, quote, nonpartisan association of current and formerly serving military, police, and first responders who pledge to fulfill the oath all military and police take to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, unquote. But translated, what that means is, They think they don't have to follow any orders from any government that they think is illegitimate, such as our current democratically elected one. You got to declare everything comes out of King Biden's mouth as illegitimate and null and void from inception because he's not a legitimate president. So let's go inside the courtroom now and examine the case so far. Prosecutors say that Rhodes, along with Kelly Meggs, Jessica Watkins, Kenneth Harrelson, and Thomas Caldwell, planned for an armed rebellion long before January 6th, and that they were prepared to do anything necessary to keep Joe Biden out of the White House. Prosecutors allege that members of the Oath Keepers attended rallies in D.C. in November and December of 2020 as, quote, dry runs. And here's what Rhodes said in December 2020 at one of those events as he tried to encourage President Trump to to fight, to stay in office. 
that if he does not do it now, while he is commander-in-chief, we're going to have to do it ourselves later in a much more desperate, much more bloody war. A much more desperate, much more bloody war. They were dressed for that bloody war the next month, January 6th. Oath Keepers decked out in full battle gear, seen moving through the mob purposefully and entering the Capitol. Prosecutors say that Megs Harrelson and Watkins were part of this stack formation, which joined a mob of people, some of whom were attacking police officers. Rhodes also allegedly entered the Capitol grounds and mentioned having a quick reaction force, a QRF, that's what it's called in the military, at a hotel outside Washington, D.C., with other members carrying firearms, standing by to join his bloody war if necessary. Prosecutors say those QRF teams were coordinated in part by Thomas Caldwell, the fifth defendant on trial right now. Today, the defense began to present its case, and we've gotten a glimpse into their strategy already. Defense attorneys argue that the Oath Keepers never had a specific plan on January 6th, and that Rhodes never explicitly instructed the group to enter the Capitol. The defense attorneys also say that the Oath Keepers were not violent during the riot, and they themselves never called in their quick reaction forces, their QRFs. Obviously, prosecutors disagree and think the Oath Keepers were conspiring for much more than they actually carried out on that day, hence the charge of seditious conspiracy. So what does that mean? What is this statute in U.S. federal law? Why does it exist? Well, as I told you, it dates back to 1861 in the U.S. Civil War. Congress made it a crime to conspire to overthrow the U.S. government or to conspire to use force to, quote, prevent hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. The Confederate insurrectionists failed, though it took four years to stop their armed rebellion. And the seditious conspiracy charge has rarely been used since. It was used notably in 1954 against terrorists pushing Puerto Rican independence. Ruthless, fanatic violence erupted in the halls of Congress. Three men and a woman believed to be members of the Puerto Rican nationalist gang that in November 1950 attempted the assassination of President Truman opened fire from the visitor's gallery of the House of Representatives. Estimates of the numbers of shots fired range from 15 to 30, and each bullet hole found is a grim reminder to those who were present of the terrible surprise attack. In that attack on the Capitol, five congressmen were shot and wounded but thankfully all survived. And those suspects were convicted on charges of seditious conspiracy. The last time the Justice Department brought those charges and won the case was in 1995, when an Egyptian cleric, the so-called Blind Sheikh, and nine of his followers were convicted in a plot to blow up the United Nations and other buildings. But look, experts say the broad nature of the seditious conspiracy law can be difficult to sell to a jury. In 1988, a jury acquitted a group of white supremacists accused of plotting to overthrow the government and establish an all-white nation. And 10 years ago, a judge just dismissed a case against a Michigan militia accused of plotting an attack on law enforcement. All of that raises the stakes for the Justice Department today in this trial against the Oath Keepers and its upcoming trial against a different far-right group, the Proud Boys. Now look, January 6th was clearly an effort to stop the peaceful transfer of power. 
But prosecutors are going to have to prove and convince a jury that it was coordinated, as evidenced by the, uh, the attack on Paul Pelosi last week or the attempted attack on Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh a few months ago. Domestic extremist violence is a real threat. A study from earlier this year by the Anti-Defamation League reveals, quote, right-wing extremists were linked to at least 26 extremist-related murders in the United States in 2021 and have been responsible for 75% of such murders in the last 10 years, unquote. So this has been building for years. Remember the Unite the Right gathering of racists and extremists in Charlottesville? Now look, back in uh, 2020, at the first presidential debate, our own Chris Wallace directly asked then-President Trump if he was willing to condemn white supremacists and far-right groups such as the Proud Boys. Do you remember Trump's response? Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. Stand back and stand by. Justice Department prosecutors say the evidence shows that these far-right groups were standing by. They were waiting for a green light to undermine democracy and allow Trump to hold on to power. As the January 6th Select House Committee has proven, there were connections between members of these far-right groups and folks in Donald Trump's orbit, people like Roger Stone or Michael Flynn. I asked Trump's former communications director, Alyssa Farah Griffin, why? The only reason you would be talking to those groups is because you wanted a violent presence at the Capitol that day. Donald Trump could today, right now, issue a clear and unequivocal condemnation of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and what they tried to do that day. You'd think condemning would-be terrorists charged by the U.S. Department of Justice with seditious conspiracy would not be difficult. Ask yourself, why hasn't he? Do you remember what the former spokesman for the Oath Keepers told the January 6th committee a few months ago? If a president that's willing to try to instill and, and, and encourage to whip up a civil war amongst his followers using lies and deceit and snake oil, and regardless of the, the human impact, what else is he going to do if he gets elected again? Opening statements in the Oath Keepers trial were given exactly one month ago. One person who's been covering every step in this trial is CNN's Sarah Seidner, who joins us right now. Sarah, thanks so much for joining. Happy to be here. So how compelling has the case been that the Department of Justice has been trying to make that this was actually a conspiracy against the United States government? Uh, very compelling. There are mountains of evidence. We have heard from about a half dozen FBI agents uh, talking about everything from where your, their phones were and having to ping the phones. Uh, we've heard from Capitol Police officers like Harry Dunn, who talked about the fact that like, while the Oath Keeper's defense is trying to say that they were trying to help him, that that was not the case in any way, shape, or form. Um, some of the most compelling has been from former Oath Keepers themselves, mm. one of whom was there that day and has pleaded guilty himself to seditious conspiracy, who basically said, look, I'm sorry, now looking back, and this is a quote, he said, I was acting like a traitor 
against my own country. Mm. And taking that upon himself as a member of, of this group that went in to the Capitol. Um, and he said, look, the three people that he knows went into the Capitol from this group of, of Oath Keepers thought of it as like a Bastille Day. So clearly they were trying to do something to stop the government from going forward, starting their own, if you will, revolution in their own minds. Mm. Um, but I think the star witness, just from my time watching this case, is the words of the defendants themselves, because they have it on Signal. They have it on their, their social media accounts. They have it in their text messages, and they have secret recordings uh, of the group talking about what they are going to do um, as this date marches closer, and even after January 6th, what they wanted to tell the president, the leader himself, Stuart Rhodes. Uh, and it was a very sort of violent-filled rhetoric about what they thought of Joe Biden winning the election. Hmm. So interesting. You've been covering hate groups for CNN for years and years and years. It's a tough beat to cover. I know you and I have talked about it. Um, how, significant was, how significant was the election of Donald Trump and Donald Trump's refusal to concede? Uh, how much was that a pivot point for these groups? So it really does go back, and I, I hate to see this, but we saw really a spike in kind of uh, rhetoric and hate crimes Actually, when President Obama, especially in his second, uh, his second uh, election, we saw those numbers start to march up. Mm. The Oath Keepers themselves, for example, they were founded in 2009. What was that year? It was the year after the first black president got into office. And there are a lot of groups that look at extremism and can correlate that uh, with why this group suddenly emerged in the way that it emerged, with the kind of backing that it emerged from its members. Uh, that being said, Pandora's box was already there. These feelings were already there. Right. President Trump just helped open the box. Maybe he blew the lid off the box. Mm -hmm. um, and then you saw a culmination of that on January 6th. But all of those feelings, they're still there. This is not over. That might have been the beginning. We don't know. But it's still part of the rhetoric that I see every day on all kinds of different social media sites that these very far-right ideologues are on. All right, Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Excellent reporting, as always. A prominent Republican is going to join us in a moment. Senator Tom Cotton, he just wrote a book about reversing what he calls the left's plot to sabotage American power. The left, after we just addressed the far-right's clear attempt to sabotage the balance of power and the transfer of power on January 6th, we have a lot to talk about with Senator Tom Cotton, including 2024. That's next. Stay with us. With five days until the midterm elections, candidates around the country are making their final pitches to voters, the ones who haven't voted already early. Among those hitting the trail for Republicans, GOP Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who's been campaigning with Dr. Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania and Herschel Walker in Georgia, J.D. Vance in Ohio. Senator Cotton also has a brand new book out called Only the Strong, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power, where he gives his take on how Democratic presidents all the way back to Woodrow Wilson have been steering the country down the wrong path when it comes to military and foreign policy issues. He writes, for example, quote, America's recent decline isn't an accident. It's declined by design. For more than a century, liberal Democrats have plotted to sabotage American power. These Democrats believe a strong, confident America brings war, arrogance, and oppression, not safety, 
freedom and prosperity. And Senator Cotton joins us now here in studio. Thank you so much for being here. Good to have you here. Thanks, Jake. It's a pointed book. <laughs> it's a very point. Is that fair to say? You think it's a pointed book? I mean, you had a lot to get off my chest. You're, there's, right? It's very <laughs> sharp criticism about Democrats. And I don't. I knew you were very conservative. I don't think I, I knew fully or realized fully how. Is contempt an okay word to use? Is it how, how, how much contempt you had well, for I, these policies? And I wonder, does it make it difficult to work with Senate Democrats, given how strongly you feel that they stand for all these wrong things? No, not at all. I mean, look, you got to deal with senators every day. One day a senator's going to be your adversary. The next day they're going to be your ally. That's not an issue. But, yeah, I mean, going back 100 years to Woodrow Wilson, as I outlined not only the strong, uh, he was the first president to openly repudiate the Declaration and the Constitution at home, that meant that he and the progressives wanted to create this vast administrative state of unelected bureaucrats trying to set the course for our country. Segregated, too. Uh, he was a horrible racist. Well, he was a virulent racist as well. But I'm just saying, he, like, didn't he, like, resegregate the he government? He did. And, but, you know, the, you, you can, the, the left can take his name off the buildings because of that, but they can't take his ideas out of their movement. And you still see that today domestically, but you see it abroad as well. Like, when he went to de- and when he declared war on, on Germany shortly after his reelection. It wasn't for any of the many good reasons to declare war on Germany that the founding fathers would have cited, like Germany conspiring with Mexico to seize territory in our southwest or killing Americans by sinking the Lusitania or interrupting our economy uh, here in America because of unrestricted submarine warfare. It was on behalf of abstract ideals. And, you know, he famously said that we're going to make the world safe for democracy. And I would suggest there's one word missing from that, and I think our founders would have suggested there's a word missing from that as well. American? We should make the world safe for America's democracy. America's democracy. So it's a lot of pointed criticisms of Democratic presidents dating back to, to Wilson and all the way through to today to President Biden. Just uh, FDR and Truman were president during the Allies' victory in World War II. Sure. Obama okayed the the mission to go kill Osama bin Laden. You cite that to criticize Biden for not not agreeing with him, (laughs) but you don't really give Obama the credit. I mean, there are some things Democratic presidents... They don't don't get everything wrong, obviously. And the older presidents in the 20th century are better than the more recent ones, especially the post-Vietnam Democratic presidents. But even with FDR and Truman, they cut the defense budget badly. I mean, our army was smaller than Portugal's army before World War II. Well, then they cranked and it back up. Same, same, same thing before uh, the Korean War. I mean, we deployed our troops into the Korean War woefully unprepared uh, and undertrained. But, but really starting with JFK, and it's a misnomer to think that JFK was a strong president. He was a, a, a disaster as a foreign policy president. But then especially after Vietnam, when the left turned not just on American, America's founding, but on America itself, then you begin to see a steady erosion of American power throughout Democratic presidencies of Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and especially Barack Obama. So one thing that I was interested, since you bring up Vietnam, I was interested uh, to read your uh, criticism of the New York Times for publishing the Pentagon Papers, um, which were leaked to the Times by Daniel Ellsberg, who thought that the war wasn't winnable and that the leaders were hiding this from the public and the public had a right to know. He first tried to bring it to members of Congress. They didn't want to do it, so then he went to the press. But here's the thing. You're also so critical, and I'm not saying you're wrong, of JFK and LBJ and how they waged the war in Vietnam. What's wrong with the New York Times bringing the failures of these Democratic administrations, two of them, to the public so they could see what was really going on? You're a veteran. You know how many Americans died in Vietnam uh, 
when the generals didn't think the war was winnable, but they didn't have the guts to, to tell the commander in chief or to tell the country. Well, it's just another example of the New York Times putting itself in the position of judging what classified information should and should not be revealed, which is not its position. You know, the Supreme York, Court sided the, with them. But the New York, well, they, they said that the New York Times couldn't uh, be subjected to a prior restraint. They said that you could have consequences after the but Didn't the public have a right to know but, of all these failures you, you criticized? Well, about the Pentagon Papers itself, I would say there wasn't a lot of new revelations there. A lot of it was already well known to the public, and, and it didn't show that the war was unwinnable because once Richard Nixon became president and he took the handcuffs off of our military, we in effect had the war won by 1973. We had stabilized the situation. The Viet Cong had been destroyed as a fighting force. Ho Chi Minh's army had no longer gained purchase in the South. Yeah. It was only when he was weakened by Watergate, Democratic Congresses began to cut funding, including a very young Senator Joe Biden, that we had the absolute disaster in South Vietnam when we had helicopters lifting off our embassy there in 1975. Well, on that subject, you compared uh, that to the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, under the Biden administration. I want to share with you something that a fellow veteran Republican, uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, tweeted. He said, I blame both Trump for this moment coming and Biden for this botched ending. I'm not picking sides because both sides have failed you. It's the truth about Afghanistan. Do you hold President Trump accountable at all for that peace treaty that he and Secretary Pompeo negotiated with the Taliban, which Biden inherited. And you might remember Trump wanted to have the Taliban leaders come to Camp David right near the anniversary of 9-11. No, it's President Biden who's responsible for what happened last year in Afghanistan. As I write, not only the strong, that agreement was not without flaw, but it, it was based on conditions on the ground, which the Taliban was not meeting in 2021. I think a lot of what happened in 2021 is that Joe Biden had a chip on his shoulder going back to 2009 that Barack Obama had sided with military advisors like Stan McChrystal and Dave Petraeus and added troops to Afghanistan and in Bob 2009. And Bob Gates, the secretary. And Bob Gates and Hillary Clinton and everyone else. And yeah. Joe Biden was the one person in 2009 who kept kind of poisoning the well between President Obama and his senior military leaders saying, you got to get out, you can't do this. He thought the generals were jamming him, yeah. And he wanted to prove, he wanted to prove that he was right. And we had numerous instances of testimony after the collapse in Afghanistan last year of Secretary Austin and General Milley and General McKenzie and others saying that their best advice is that we keep a small contingent in Afghanistan, that we keep military, con or I'm sorry, civilian contractors there to keep the Afghan Air Force flying so they can provide air cover for the Afghan troops. Even most of the advisors, my understanding is, in the White House and the State Department advised Joe Biden against this course of action. Right. But you, you don't hold Trump responsible for that. You say it's a flawed treaty. I think, but I think in, in the end, it's, it was Joe Biden's decision okay. as the commander-in-chief last year. So first of all, this underlines why you should be coming on CNN more uh, so that we can have these conversations because it's good for people to hear from you, uh, not just on Fox or in Arkansas. Um, I know you're not going to announce on my show that you're running for president <laughs> in 2024, but two, two quick questions. Does Trump's decision as to whether or not he's going to run, will that play any role in whether or not you decide to run? And do you think you'd make a good president? Those are, come uh, on. Uh, I'll just say, say two things. First, we have an election five days from now. Sure. And that's where my focus is. There'll be time after that election to think about the 2024 election. Uh -huh. But anyone who thinks they can be president and wants to run for president should check out a copy of Only the Strong so they can <laughs> learn how to restore American power, Jeff. All right, your publisher is going to be very happy with that. I'm interested to see what your Amazon rank is. Please come back. It's good to see you, Senator. But best Thank to your you, wife too. and your boys. Really appreciate it. Coming up. Some very serious questions still need answering after another deadly school shooting. The teenage gunman who shot up a school in St. Louis last week was once blocked by the FBI. 
by the background check system from buying a semi-automatic rifle. So why was he eventually able to purchase one? Why wasn't law enforcement uh, informed that he had tried to do this? How did so many warning signs go missed? We're going to investigate. That's next. Two people, one student, one teacher, shot and killed at a school in St. Louis. This is the 67th school campus terrorized by gunfire this year alone in the United States. Been In our now far too routine analysis, one part we don't pay enough attention to is this. The information that we have at the current time is that they were legally purchased firearms. It was legally purchased in a gun store. All indications are they were purchased legally. Once again, in St. Louis, the suspect was 19. He was legally an adult. He had no criminal record. You might hear that and think, of course, he's allowed to buy a gun. There's nothing that could have prevented this from happening. But that's not accurate. As CNN contributor and founder of the website The Reload, Stephen Gutowski points out, by the police department's own telling of events, it certainly appears the St. Louis shooter committed at least two crimes before he opened fire last week at the Central Visual and Performing Arts High School, Crimes that should have led to police actions that could have prevented the shooting. For the first one, the shooter tried to buy a gun, but he failed the federal background check, likely after lying on the background check form. That's a crime. The St. Louis Police Commissioner, Michael Sack, gives the likely answer as to why he failed the background check despite his lack of a criminal record. He has no prior criminal history. Multiple involuntary mental health commitments would have flagged the shooter as a prohibited person. In other words, someone who cannot legally buy a gun. And federal law makes it a crime for someone not allowed to own a weapon to even attempt to buy one. Local police should have been alerted as soon as he was flagged on October 8th for failing that background check while trying to buy a gun. You see, there's a new federal law. It passed in March. It requires the FBI to report every failed background check to local police. That does not appear to have happened here. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the shooter initially tried to buy a gun from a licensed dealer in nearby St. Charles, Missouri, but he was turned down. The St. Charles police, they say they were never notified about a failed background check. The FBI never told them. Might they have done something different if they had heard that someone who failed a background check was trying to buy a gun? We don't know, but we do know the FBI apparently dropped the ball here. It appears the shooter was able to buy a gun through a private sale, which does not require a background check in Missouri. And that brings us to the second crime likely committed before last week's attack. The shooter had the gun when police were called to his house earlier this year by his own family, who was worried about his having that weapon. Uh, They were aware that he had, had acquired a firearm, Um, They uh, worked with our department to transfer that to to an adult who could legally possess one. The St. Louis police officers earlier this year could have arrested the shooter then for even having a weapon because he was on the prohibited person's list. But they didn't. We don't know if they even knew about him failing the background check when they got to his house. But we know this trail of missed warning signs is all too common. There were red flag laws in place that should have kept a gun out of the hands of the suspect in that Buffalo racist attack on that grocery store in May, which saw 10 innocent people shot and killed. 
just like there were background check laws in place in Highland Park, Illinois, where the shooter nonetheless got guns legally and murdered seven people on the 4th of July. Time after time, the laws appear to be there. The tools appear to be there, but they're not being used by law enforcement. All these warning signs are falling through the cracks. It's an area where there needs to be vast improvement. Lives literally depend upon it. We have five days until the midterms. We're going to take you to one of the biggest battlegrounds, Arizona. The Democratic candidate for governor, Katie Hobbs, is here. Will her decision to not debate her opponent, Carrie Lake, cost her on Tuesday? And should Hobbs recuse herself as Secretary of State from overseeing her own election? That's next. The Democratic nominee for Arizona governor, Katie Hobbs' message to voters is clear. Democracy, she says, is on the ballot. It's a message former President Obama tried to drive home while campaigning with Hobbs yesterday. And if you've got election deniers serving as your governor, as your senator, as your secretary of state, as your attorney general, then democracy as we know it may not survive in Arizona. That's not an exaggeration. That is a fact. I mean, he's right, but just days out from the midterm elections, Hobbs is locked in a statistical dead heat with her opponent, election liar Carrie Lake. The race has led many Democrats to wonder why Hobbs has given Lake an opening by refusing to debate her and call out her lies face to face. And Katie Hobbs, the Secretary of State of Arizona, joins us now. Uh, Secretary Hobbs, thanks for joining us. Um, I get not wanting to amplify Lake's rhetoric or provide her a platform, but She has a platform. She got one anyway, even if you don't debate her. She still got one from the TV stations. And she's branded you a coward for refusing to take the stage with her. Doesn't standing up for the facts and truth, doesn't that require debating? I don't agree with that. Um, I've been continuing to stand up for the facts and truth um, during my tenure as Secretary of State, pushing back on all this election denialism uh, since the 2020 election um, and on the campaign trail. Um, the, the fact is, you know, at this point in the in the game, we're five days out from the election. Uh, I'm not second guessing any decisions we've made. I'm really proud of the campaign that we're running. That I'm confident in the campaign that we're running. And, um, you know, we knew this race was going to be tight. Um, it is not surprising to me that we're in a dead heat uh, and and it's going to be a close outcome. You're, you're receiving criticism uh, from some in your own party. Congressman Tim Ryan, who's running for Senate in Ohio. He's a Democrat. He was asked about uh, your refusal to, to debate your opponent. Take a listen. Have some guts. Have some guts. Look, you, got, you have to lead. This, this moment right now is calling for leadership. It's calling for citizenship. You need leaders who can go into an environment like a Fox News town hall as a Democrat and say, look, we got to love each other. We got to care about each other. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation. We need reform. We need some grace. And it starts by leaders going into those environments saying, I understand you have concerns. Let's talk about them. Is he wrong? Well, if Carrie Lake showed any inclination to actually have a substantive conversation about the issues, perhaps. 
um, he would be right. But but she's only interested in creating a spectacle. And I've I've made the decision to make my case directly to the voters. I've done several town halls uh, and I've done several uh, in-depth interviews with media uh, and we're continuing to take it on the road and talk directly to voters. Uh, that's the choice we made, and and Tim Ryan can run his own campaign, uh, and um, and 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 we're we're running ours. So, I mean, she has said that if she had been governor la- in in 2020, she would not have certified uh, the results in Arizona. And you had a Republican governor at the time; you still do, Governor Ducey, uh, and he did certify the election. She says so many false things wild, untethered, crazy things. She's telling almost half of Arizona, uh, I don't respect your votes if you don't vote for me, if you don't vote for Republicans. Why is it so close? Uh, Arizona is a battleground state. It means every single race is a battle. Uh, Every single statewide uh, nominee is on the Republican side is an election denier, and every single statewide race is close, even Mark Kelly's. This week, a federal judge in your state, in Arizona, imposed new restrictions on this one right-leaning group, blocking members from openly carrying guns or wearing body armor within 250 feet of uh, voting drop boxes. And speaking to or yelling at voters who are dropping off their ballots in the state, uh, how concerned are you about the impact these so-called activists might have on intimidating voters from actually casting their ballots? Well, I think that's exactly the outcome they're looking for. So we are incredibly concerned about it. We were preparing for the possibility of this and uh, have acted on every referral that's come to our, our office, making sure we're referring it to the proper authorities um, for investigation. It, it's critical that these matters are investigated and acted on quickly. I'm grateful for the judge uh, for implementing the restraining order on these activities. Uh, but we're still vigilant and making sure that um, voters uh, know what the options are to vote safely, to make sure that they can cast their ballot in a way that's free from uh, intimidation or harassment. Uh, and thankfully in Arizona, we have a lot of options. Uh, we continue to have a reporting form available on our website and we'll continue mm-hmm. to report these um, incidents as we learn of them. So uh, in addition to being the Democratic uh, gubernatorial nominee, you're the Secretary of State of Arizona, which means you're in charge of supervising this election. Um, There are calls that you should recuse yourself uh, from overseeing the election, given the fact that you're uh, running for governor. Uh, It's not just from wackos. Recently, two former Arizona secretaries of state, a Democrat and a Republican, uh, said that to avoid even the appearance of a conflict, uh, you should recuse. But in addition to that, we know Carrie Lake insanely says she's only going to accept the election results if she if she wins. Take a listen. I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result because the people will never the people of Arizona will never support and vote for a coward like Katie Hobbs. So I realize she's out there, but but given all the insanity out there, might the election results be tougher for her to challenge if you do, in fact, recuse yourself from your secretary of state duties, specifically just having to do with the governor's race, might that be the most prudent thing to do? Uh, elected secretaries of state in Arizona have overseen uh, elections where they're on the ballot since statehood. 
Uh, this has never been an issue until now, and I'm not going to recuse myself from the job that the voters elected me to do, and for which I took an oath of office to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution and laws of the state of Arizona. I have done that throughout my tenure as Secretary of State, and I will continue to do that until I leave office on January 2nd. All right. Carrie Lake is the one who is... Oh, go go ahead. ahead. Oh, Carrie Lake is the one who's based her entire campaign on these false premises of election fraud. Uh, and she's do making these calls for my recusal uh, to distract from her extreme positions and to distract from the fact that she's actually the one who wants to dismantle democracy in our state and country. Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, enjoy your next five days on the campaign trail. Thank you. Did Democrats get too comfortable banking on Rovember? My next guest pulled off a big upset in his special election this past summer after seizing on the uproar over the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But that doesn't appear to be on top of voters' minds anymore, at least not enough voters. The economy is the number one issue. So does Congressman Pat Ryan still think he can win Tuesday with Romentum fading? That's coming up. When... The Supreme Court ripped away reproductive freedoms, access to abortion rights. We said, this is not what America stands for. It was barely two months ago when Democrat Pat Ryan pulled off what seemed a surprising special election victory in a New York swings district. This fueled Democrats' hopes that abortion rights could be a winning issue in the midterm election, since Ryan made it the focus of his campaign. But in the weeks since... We've shown you repeatedly how voters' concerns have shifted far more toward the economy and fears of a recession. So can Congressman Ryan win with the same message in his newly drawn congressional district? Let's bring him in and ask him. Democratic Congressman Pat Ryan of New York joins us now. So, Congressman, four months Democrats were hopeful about a blue wave in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, what some called Rovember. But that seems unlikely. It seems highly out of reach Uh, Do you think your party, the Democratic Party, has been too comfortable banking on that issue and the issue of democracy when this much more uh, salient issue of the economy and inflation and recession fears was obviously more on voters' minds? Thanks for having me, Jake. Look, what I'm hearing is people can be worried about multiple things at once. And right now, what Americans want us to deliver on are to fight for their rights, their fundamental rights, including reproductive rights, but voting rights, LGBTQ rights, and also to deliver relief. And it's not talked about as much uh, by the press, but we had both of those messages at full steam ahead in our special election, fighting for your rights and delivering relief. And so that message has continued to be really resonant, not just here, but across the country. Uh, And I think we will continue to see that momentum. Look, when a fundamental American freedom is ripped away from half the country, Americans stood up uh, in Kansas and New York and Alaska, and they are going to do it again in November. I am confident of that. But you've seen the polling indicating that um, a lot of the voters uh, that I would think somebody like you and a lot of Democrats need to turn out for you, um, specifically white suburban women, uh, have been shifting, independent women, shifting to the Republican camp, uh, at least according to polling. I've got to say, with all respect to the pollsters, 
they were so far wrong in my race, and they've been consistently wrong for years and years and years now. We've got to actually start listening to people on the ground, which is what I've been doing and candidates across the country, not the pollsters. In my special election, everyone said we were going to lose. We never were leading in any of the dozen plus polls, and we won because we stood up and said we are fighting for something. We're fighting to protect shared American freedoms. And my opponent stood for absolutely nothing except for fear and division and, and delivering no results. That mm. is what we have to continue to keep our head down, talk about uh, delivering uh, relief and fighting for rights. Your new opponent, uh, Republican State Assembly member uh, Colin Schmidt, has joined other Republicans in pushing a, a tough on crime message. He's tried to tie you to New York's contentious bail laws, which limit the ability of judges to set cash bail for accused criminals. It's what the GOP and even some Democrats have blamed for the rising crime rates. What's your counter argument? Well, look, we, we always see this, a, a desperate attempt to divide us and to incite fear rather than to be for something and to be talking about delivering and bringing us together. And I think people see through that. Uh, in my special election, once again, we were outspent four to one. The same message, uh, these lies and deceptions about records on crime and public safety, Look, I've worn the uniform in combat. I'm a proud West Point graduate, served two deployments in Iraq. I know what it means to keep people safe. I know what it means, both in my last job as a local elected official and in Congress, to increase funding uh, to law enforcement, as I've done. And I think people see right through this BS and this division. And again, it's about being for something, giving people to come out something uh, to come out for, rather than uh, to continue to be so cynical and negative and divisive. All right, Democratic Congressman uh, Pat Ryan, thank you. Enjoy your next five days on the campaign trail. All right, thanks, Jake. We'll be right back. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Jake Tapper. That's right, I deleted TikTok. I did. Tomorrow, actress uh, Kerry Washington's going to be here. She's working to get voters out to the polls. The midterms are now just five days away. Tomorrow, they'll be four days away. That's tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern. Our coverage now continues with Luminous Laura Coates and awesome Allison Camerata. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 